the, one of the bigger challenges is, is getting people to stay focused on the ideal customer profile. You know, shorter sales cycles, bigger deals, greater longevity of, of the deal. And I think a challenge with software in general is that you can, a lot of times, you're, even though you've made your stuff for one use case, it can, there's a lot of other use cases that it kind of fits with. But if it's not really what you're trying to do, it's often not strategic for you to do it. And you certainly don't want the, the sales team to get the engineering team or the product team to start building things for this in, in this direction that you don't think is as strategic. Welcome back to another episode of The Dirt. Today, I am thrilled to welcome a fellow Wisconsin Badger on Wisconsin, baby. Steve Benson is the founder and CEO of Badger Maps, a field sales app that helps salespeople be more efficient and successful as they are driving their way through the field. From focusing on the ideal customer profile to harnessing the power of offshore talent, Steve's leadership journey is a masterclass, as is this episode, in resilience, grit, and innovative growth strategies. As always, I am your host, Jim Barnish, and a big thank you to our sponsor, Orchid Black at orchid.black. And don't forget to check out our YouTube channel where we are posting the full video recordings of each of our shows, including this one. All right, Steve, let's dig in. Who is Steve and what is Badger Maps? So, uh, Steve, uh, Steve is just a guy. Um, <laughs> the uh, Badger Maps is a, uh, a company that we, we make an application for field salespeople and field service people. Um, so think like a medical device sales rep. Um, what we do is we connect into their CRM or wherever their customer data lives and bring that information into a mapping environment on their phone or in their, on their computer where they can understand their territory on a map, build routes, build out their schedule, figure out who to focus on given where they're going to be at in the field and, uh, and basically give them a, a planning tool and a, an insight tool into their, uh, in, into their territory. Sounds pretty awesome. And I, I got a bunch of questions tied to that, but before we go there, you know, how, how did you, I know you haven't been doing this since you were five. So how, how did you, uh, how did you get into this industry and, you know, what, what led you to start Badger Maps? Well, my last role um, in, in the working world was I, I was at Google working, working with Maps and the Maps API. Uh, and my, his, my background was in field sales, so I understood kind of a lot of the problems that field salespeople have. And this is, you know, this is like 2010, 2011. And I could kind of see where mobile was going and that mobile devices and mapping were going to be able to solve a pretty big problem that field salespeople and field service people have traditionally had. Um, and uh, so I guess I understood the problem well, because I'd done it and I understood the kind of where the technology was and where it was going to some degree. Uh, Google used to have these posters up everywhere. Like what's the, what's going to be possible when the mobile internet's a hundred times faster. And, um, and so I, uh, you know, I kind of see where the puck was going. And, and so I, that's, that's what kind of brought me to start this company and try to solve the problem that I, that I solved. Nice. And, um, I know that, uh, you know, Salesforce, for instance, has um, 
a uh, a version of what you do that sales SFDC specific, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what is it? Is it just like that? Um, is or you know what is what is it that attracts folks to you versus to them or any other other competition out there? Uh, they're slightly different, but there's a lot of overlap there um, with what they do. Uh, they they actually purchased our biggest competitor, um, oh. and, and that competitor was just focused on solving this problem for Salesforce. Uh, whereas we've kind of, we're we're a bit broader. We solve it for Salesforce and also um, a bunch of the other leading CRMs. So uh, we we connect into I think seven CRMs now and 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 bring these capabilities to them. Um, in terms of how we compare directly with them, and it's been interesting competing with them and it it was a we'll get into this later in the conversation i know but we're a bootstrapped company the competitor they purchased had raised about 70 million dollars um over the years and they they kind of that that caused them to go in a whole bunch of different directions rather than just you know we we kind of went after this one problem for field sales people they were more broadly solving trying to solve broadly bringing bringing mapping to salesforce for lots of things um they've ended so they they're not just a tool for doing the sorts of things that we do for field sales but they actually kind of went in a different direction so we compete very well against them if if you have a field sales team that's on salesforce and and you know you want mapping and routing and and to kind of figure out where you're focusing uh as a field for your field sales team or as a field sales person we do very well against them there, but they do a whole bunch of other stuff that we don't do. So like if you're designing a territory, meaning you've got a hundred sales reps across the country and um, you want to figure out which one will get which territory and what those territories should be, how big should they be, which customers will be in them, that sort of thing. Um, they have a, a mapping product that does that. So it's a little confusing because it's all s- mapping software for sales, but there are actually different problems that salespeople have and that, that maps are involved in. The other major thing they do, um, and there's also another company called GeoPoint that, that does this pretty well. It's like a mapping analysis of your, of your CRM data on Salesforce. So, mm-hmm. you know, helping, helping your sales operations team or your marketing team figure things out. Like where do we, where should we run these campaigns or where, you know, how how should we, you know, where should we hire the next salesperson? Like the, those types of like data analysis problems. Um, and, and we don't do that. We, we're for the field salesperson in the field, um, or their management team who's managing fields, field salespeople in the field. Um, and, and then there's, uh, a confusing corollary corollary to that, which is field service people who act like salespeople. And what I mean by that is they have to make decisions. Like if you are a, a trucking company or a field service company that just has to visit this many places and this is the order you have to do it in, um, you know, if you have like boxes to deliver or something as a trucking company, uh, sure. there's not, you're not making decisions about who to go see. It's more just like, Hey, here's a thousand points and a, that we have to go to and a thousand, we have 10 trucks to do it in over the next week. How do we do that? And, and they do that as well. We don't, we don't do that. So, um, that's a long answer, uh, but that is the mapping market in, uh, for, for the Salesforce ecosystem. 
And where, where you guys are um, really unique, right, and, and really solving the problem, it sounds like, is platform agnostic, right? doesn't matter if, whether it's Salesforce or whatever it is, and really focused on the field reps themselves, whether that's medical sales or venture capitalists that are looking to visit a bunch of companies or trucking companies, right? It, just, it doesn't it's, – it's focused on solving problems for the field reps. Right. And so that, what, that's correct. Uh, what's that KPI that you guys, uh, what's that the KPI that really matters to your customers as they're weighing out renewals and, and you know, things like that with, with Badger Maps? Well, I think the, the KPI that salespeople care about the most is, is revenue. What am I selling? And so right. we're an efficiency tool effectively. So we help you plan and plan your time in the field and focus on the most important people when you're in the field. Uh, so that's probably, you know, we, if you're more efficient when you're in the field and you're seeing the more important customers or the strategic customers, and, and we help you figure that out, you end up selling more, uh, you know, at, at a most basic level, if you're planning your day well and planning your time in the field, you're going to spend less time driving and more time working with customers. So less wasted time. And, and so you sell more the easy, you know, the, the, the easiest way you can tell if, if we're helping you out or not, or is, is just to look at your mileage, right? So most, most salespeople are saving, you know, gathering mileage data because they get paid on it, right? The com your company, right. if you're a salesperson pays you 50 cents a mile. So everybody kind of tracks how far they're driving. Once you start using us, you end up driving, driving about 20% fewer miles on it. That's the average rep. And so they can, you can therefore kind of see how much time you're saving and how much, um, uh, the other, the other big KPI is how many meetings are you getting per week? Um, although that's not a perfect KPI cause it's also, are you focused on the right people? Like, are you, you know, covering the territory as well as you can, but a lot of people do me measure their, their meetings per week and, and different companies will have different metrics. They'll try to keep to kind of calculate coverage and how, understand how well are we covering the territory? Um, which is tricky depending on the in industry, but most people will see their meetings go up on average about two meetings per rep. Um, I think it was 2.1 we calculated, but, uh, when, so when you bring in Badger, you drive 20% less, you get some more meetings and, and, and those meetings are with, with, uh, better people. So you're getting better coverage. And overall that, that makes you sell more, which is the most important KPI for these guys. Are, uh, are, are any of the customers coming to you about any other revenue-focused problems that you guys aren't solving for at all? And what I mean by that is you're obviously focused on a buyer of sales leadership, um, it sounds like, and, and the value from a user perspective of feed, field sales. I imagine that you're, that you're forming some really good relationships with your customers. And I'm, I'm just curious, um, you know, and are they ever coming to you about anything outside of what you would solve for traditionally with Badger sales where you have to tell them, or Badger maps where you have to tell them, no, that's out of our wheelhouse or, you know, sure, we'll solve that for you. And anything, anything that comes to mind? People do come, us, come to us for the, for the wrong thing. And for, it is a, a relatively um, confusing space. Uh, so the, the, the things that they'll come to us and ask us to do that we don't do, um, the biggest thing is probably design sales territories. And I think there's some confusion in the market, but which we just don't do, right? We don't, if you have a hundred people, we don't help you split the territories up. People can adjust their territories 
once they're in Badger. So like if you connect us to Salesforce, you can see which rep is in which territory and everything. And, and you can move the territory, like you could carve off this piece. You know, we have a little lasso tool. You can carve off this piece of the territory and move it into another territory, another per- under mm. another, another person's name, which will then be reflected in Salesforce. So because we do a little bit of it uh, and because Salesforce uh, maps does that, um, there's some confusion that we would also do it. You know, it's like, oh, well, you would do everything sales mapping wise for, for, for someone when really we just, you know, we, we've, we're focused on what we're focused on. Um, sure. The other thing that people will ask us to do. So another, there's two, well, there's a bunch of types of salespeople, right? There's retail sales, inside sales, outside sales, uh, outside sales, also called field sales. Um, and, but one confusing thing is that there are th- there's different types of field salespeople, and and a major breakdown is: are you selling to businesses or are you selling to people's houses? And this is this is big in certain countries and certain areas of the country. Uh, so I live in in Utah right now. Door to door sales is very big here. Um, they'll sell they'll sell all kinds of things here door to door, but like think like a solar sales rep, like someone who's selling solar panels for people's houses door to door. And that's also a field sales rep, but that's who also needs a map. Obviously they're going down the street and deciding which, which houses to sell to, but that door to door sales uh, is not really something that we're as, as well equipped to handle. It's kind of a different type of sales rep that need has slightly different problems than someone who's a, say a medical device sales rep selling lasers to dentists, right? We right. help that guy selling lasers to dentists and they're driving around town and selling to the thousand dentists that are in Salt Lake, which is a very different mapping problem than which neighborhood should we go to tomorrow with our six sales reps that are selling solar panels to, do- to houses and, and walk down the street and which houses should we talk to given the angle of the house to the sun? Is this a good house for solar or not? And are, do they have a big tree blocking their roof? Cause that would make them bad. And, are they renters or buyers and what's their credit credit score? These are all, it's all a different type of software than, than us. And the companies that do that are called, uh, one's called sales rabbit and one's called Spotio for those door to door, um, needs. And we don't do that, but a lot of people will come to us and, and, uh, you know, I think the lesson, the lesson that I would impart to people is if you have something similar to you and people come to you confused, don't try to, some software companies will try to sell those people. Um, you know, they came to you for a boat and you sell cars and you, 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 you try to sell them your car. I think it's much better to just say, Hey, here's a similar company. Sounds very similar to us, but they actually do a slightly different thing. I'd recommend you check them out. And because it's not good to sell people a car if they're looking for boats. And, uh, you, and, and so you really want to train your sales reps to, to not try to do that because they're going to churn eventually, even if you sell them, even because because can you use us to do that stuff? Yes. Could you use their stuff to do what we do? Yes. But like, it's not as good of a fit because it's kind of optimized for this different use case. And so if you do win the deal, it'll end up churning eventually because people will figure it, figure out, oh, what I actually wanted was this boat over here. Ah, I've, now I've got a car. That's not what I wanted. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, that's the lesson there. So how, how do you make sure that your salespeople aren't... Um you know, aren't, aren't breaking that philosophy, right? Like, do you do that through compensation? Do you do it through general, um, you know, focus from a strategy perspective? Like how, what are, what are the routes that you do to make sure that that doesn't happen in your organization? Yeah. I mean, the, the challenge is they would get paid either way, I think is the, and, and the salesperson 
uh, doesn't really get penalized for churn a year and a half later, the, the CSA does. Right. So, so the, there's your, your, your salesperson's passing this deal to the CSA. The CSAs need to understand like, Oh, this isn't the right use case. People needed to transport materials over water and we sold them our truck that drives around the water. That's but they, what they wanted was a boat to transport stuff over water. Right. And, uh, so it, it's really having that alignment and training across the team to be on the lookout for that because, um, and, and pre-sale our CSAs actually get involved in kind of an SE type role. And, and mm. so kind of, since they're the ones that'll end up taking the hit on that, they're, they, they're trained to, to be on the lookout to say, Hey, wait a minute. You're selling vacuum cleaners door to door to people. Well, sounds. Are you walking down the street, sound, talking to each house, well, or every third house, based on characteristics? It sounds like you maybe want to look at this product over here and, and direct them away from us. Because even though you could use us for that, it's not the best fit. Yeah, awesome. So, um, talk to me about a time when. Um, it's it's called the dirt this podcast right so i'm gonna just go ahead and lean into the brand a little bit talk talk to me about a time when you encountered significant dirt with the revenue team and by that i mean whether it's sales marketing customer success whatever it might be um in the growth of badger maps could have been in the early days could have been yesterday but and how you might have handled that um uh that type of dirt what do you mean by dirt exactly like a how, how, problem anything or? anything that anything that isn't clean anything that needed to get your hands dirty could be you know a, any problem that you experience within the revenue team okay well i, I think uh the, one of the bigger challenges is, is is getting people to stay focused on the ideal customer profile you know shorter sales cycles bigger deals greater longevity of of the deal and i think uh you know, a challenge with software in general is that you can, a lot of times, you're, even though you've made your stuff for one use case, it can, there's a lot of other use cases that it kind of fits with. But if it's not really what you're trying to do, it's often not strategic for you to do it. And you certainly don't want the, the sales team to get the engineering team or the product team to start building things for this in, in this direction that you don't think is as strategic. Sure. And um, it, it it, it's a great it's it's a great question because we we were just talking about it right it's it's you know people there there's there's these adjacent markets um, to us you know the 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 stuff that um, Salesforce Maps and GeoPoint do like the you know the sales analytics the I think they call it Geo Analytics is their is their branding of it um, mm-hmm. you know it like it's you can do a lot of that stuff in our software, but we're really not building the key features that you would need to do it as well as they're doing it. Right. Cause that's the direction they've gone. And we've gone in, in this direction of, of field sales. Um, and, and then there's same thing with the door to door stuff, right. That we were just talking about, like it's, it's, it's similar, but it's not quite, it's not the thing that we're really going after. We're really going after this B2B um, field sales rep. And the mm-hmm. territory mapping stuff, people are always asking us for those those capabilities, and and we have looked to partner with people to bring those capabilities into our product. But often in the end, you're you know, when we evaluated that, it was like, well, actually, I mean, we should just I wouldn't like they want to kind of be build on our on our backbone because we're already integrated with all these CRMs, so they want to just bring almost white label their product into ours. 
but it's like, yeah, it, we, maybe that's a good idea, but it's, it's going to really take our eye off the ball to, to, to do that. It's, it's better just for them to connect into these CRMs and bring that capability, which is really a different, it's a different piece of software, even though it, it all has sales mapping in the name. It's, these are different pieces of software. So right. that's keeping, keeping your, your sales team aligned on that ideal c- customer profile and not chasing revenue um, that, that uh, is outside of really what we do is, is I think a challenge. And I've, I've had, I've been a part of software organizations in, in the past, um, particularly a company called autonomy that I worked for. And they would just go after anything that had to do with data organization. And a lot of times it wouldn't be the best fit because, um, you know, they, there would already be something that was really good at that type of data management, but they'd go after the deal anyway. And it was just very inefficient because you're always, you're, you're always kind of, you know, selling the wrong thing to the wrong place. And, and that's, that's, uh, it's bad for everybody. It's bad for the customer. It's bad for the company. It's bad for, for everybody. Maybe, maybe too much autonomy in that case then. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic with the name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit yeah um awesome any other any other problems or, or dirt that that comes to mind in terms of you know as you guys evolved things that got you know trials tribulations obstacles that that kind of presented themselves and that you guys have overcome um one challenge that jumps to mind is uh we we the sales team used to be kind of the front line of um all the phone calls and, and support tickets type things that today I would call a support ticket, but customers wanting to, wanting to deal with uh, different problems they were having or questions they had or things they wanted set up the sales team and the customer success team were kind of, they were really getting gummed up by current customers, questions and and needs and uh, customizations that, that we could set up basically. Um, and the way we, we have got with the way we've gotten around that is with a, with a in-house support team, um, offshore that receives all the, uh, the, the phone calls and the inbound phone calls of that nature. And the sales team used to really get gummed up with those phone calls because, you know, some of them were new leads, so they would take the calls, but then also, you know, then it, it happens to be a customer being like, Hey, I'm trying to set it up like this. And I have could you help me? And so they ended up, ended up doing kind of a lot of, you know, what I would, what would is actually support work. So now all those calls get directed towards the support team, um, emails, chats. And, and so we're able to give our customers support in a very timely manner and, and, and not have it gum up the, the sales and, and CSA team. So I would definitely recommend that to people like having, having a support team that, that, um, protects your sales and, and sales team and customer success team, uh, but also assist, is able to assist your customers. Now that brings up a really good, a really good point because I think one of the things that, um, that we've talked about in the past, Steve, is how you've been able to, you know, leverage offshore talent in a meaningful way on both the development front or support, support front and the development front. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, was, Talk to me about that that journey in in getting that you know getting those resources acquiring the talent and and fixing you know or or improving the process to leverage those types of resources. Yeah, I, I think this is just table stakes for bootstrapping a company. Like engineering talent is really expensive uh, in America. There's some really big companies with really 
sweet monopolies on different elements of the tech eco, the tech sphere, and they soak up and dry, soak up a lot of engineers and drive up the price, drive up the wages, um, and then you know obviously lower multiples that VCs are paying now than a year ago, but um, you know venture capital injects a lot of money into sometimes highly questionable ideas, but those questionable ideas still soak up the engineering talent, right? So, you know, they, they had a hundred, hundred engineers working on something for, for five years before they were like, Oh, this is never going to sell and close it down. But they, they soaked up the engineers and in the meantime, right? So, um, I think offshoring is kind of necessary unless you have access, unless you just have a, in insanely fast growing idea that's just printing money or you have unless you've raised a lot of money and, and you get to spend it on this stuff but even if you have raised a lot of money I, I or have an insane idea i think you're still almost always better off hiring engineers from other places and, and the engineering market is tight everywhere right but but it's a lot less expensive um and a lot less tight in a lot of other places than than uh there's nowhere tighter than probably the Bay Area, right? Um, but we we have offices in uh, in Salt Lake, and when I compared, you know, scaling the engineering team in Salt Lake because and we were in the Bay Area at the time, when I compared scaling it in Salt Lake versus scaling it uh, in another country, uh, it, it was still a slam dunk to go to to go to the other country. And uh, you know, my 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 thought when picking a place, and, and there were we we were looking at a lot of places. Uh, and we, the, the reason we picked the one we did, you want to go somewhere where, you know, play, companies like Google are never going to open an office. Um, and the trick there is if it doesn't have a direct flight from San Francisco, they're probably not going to open an office there. Uh, so you want to be, you know, we still have an international airport where in the town that we're in, but, um, we, it, it, there's no direct flights from San Francisco. You gotta, you gotta hop through, uh, through the, the main, the main ten, the main city in the country. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that's, 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 uh, but there, and there's a lot of, and, and then of course you want a place where there's lots of good engineers. So, you know, uh, a solid university that prints out a lot that with a solid CS program that prints out, prints out engineers. And that's, those are kind of the two main, the two major criteria that, that we looked at. And we, and there are, you know, hundreds of places that fit this criteria. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of places that aren't, uh, that, that are, that are, that are better to scale an engineering team in than, than the Bay area. And so many pains I hear from other CEOs. They're like, Oh, we're, we just keep losing people. And we just keep trying to, it's such a, we're always hiring engineers. It's such a pain to keep them. And they barely scale up on a, on the product before they're out the door already. And, um, you know, we, we don't have any of those problems, uh, being not that we don't have any churn of it of, of, on that team, but it's much, much lower and, and much less expensive than if, if, uh, if you were based in, in uh sunnyvale so you're doing that with your with your engineering team but um also on the support side as well correct yeah definitely yeah we we have a, a whole team in-house and, and you know I, I think it is it's worth the effort to in-house your your support team you know and, and and treat them well you know like it's a it's a really they're a front line with the customers and so it's worth um you know I think a lot of people really look to cut costs there and, 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 and do it as cheaply as possible. But, um, 
it's worth, I think it's a place that's worth investing and, and treating, treating people well and making them long-term employees. I mean, I, I have people on that team that have been there for seven, eight years now. And it's, um, and, and I, I think in you know, employment in general, people think of as, as, as much more short-term than it should be. Like when I started my career, it was, you know, you, you were joining a company for life basically. Um, and, and today people kind of think of it as a, oh, I'm joining a company. Two years would be a long time. Like, and, but, but there's a lot of value to, to making a, a, a play, creating a business and treating people in such a way that they want to stay there for, for the long haul value Absolutely. unlocked on both sides, you know, the, both, both on the employee side and the employer side. And are these folks support and um, and uh, and tech dev? Um, are they uh, in all in the same city, or are they in in the different cities, different regions? No, different, d- totally different places. Because um, we're kind of looking for different things. the The support team is actually remote, and so you know they all work from home, and so they could, they're scattered around um, okay. around a whole country. But uh, then the, the the engineering team is is all you know more more, more of a hybrid role, but they, they have an office that they spend a lot of time in. And so they're all centralized in one place. Got it. Got it. You mentioned this term earlier, uh, bootstrapping, which we talk a lot about on this podcast. Um, you've done, uh, the bootstrap route to a pretty significant, uh, revenue number. I'm not going to share that here, but, um, it's, it's okay. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's no secret. I mean, we, I, 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 uh, my, I, I try to make my metrics relatively transparent. So I, I say I'm enough that, uh, my, my competitors know how big I am anyway, <laughs> but we're, we're, <laughs> well, we're doing like, you know, 5.6 million in, uh, in ARR now. So to five plus five plus million AR, um, and you um, have done that um, pretty successfully. Have you have you raised any capital outside of traditional dilutive financing, like not non dilutive financing to help bridge gaps to help you know fuel the fire? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that's a great thing for us to talk about. I've used I've done a lot of debt over the years. Um, uh, you know, raising debt and paying back debt back. I, I probably raised about six million over the last ten years if you added all added it all up. Um, and I and I'd be happy to kind of talk about the gotchas there and w- what the learnings are. Yeah, please. Um. So I guess uh, the first thing is. For SaaS companies, not everyone understands our business model, right? A lot of the traditional lenders um, aren't allowed to treat a revenue stream as a asset. So to them, an asset, you know, it's a, if there was a restaurant making $5 million a year versus me, they'd rather make a loan to the restaurant because they've got, you know, glasses and tables and the stoves and stuff like Hard that. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Like they, they like things that they can, they don't, a bank doesn't want to take the stove, but they like that the stove's there to take, if that right. makes sense. Whereas right. for us, it's like, you know, what are you going to take my laptop? There's, there's nothing here. Um, they, they, they need to have uh, profit to make a, to make a loan and they need to have, uh, they, they need to have hard assets. And so, or at least one or the other. Uh, to a reasonable degree. So a lot of those traditional lenders that have cheap capital aren't available to us. And so there's, there's kind of a, these, these businesses that have stepped in and, uh, uh, 
and gone after lending to the SaaS market. And those are probably the ones that you're often going to be working with, especially when you're smaller at, at a certain size, you can, you can do deals with banks um, and, and other lenders that are, that are cheaper. Um, but it's relatively expensive capital right now um, in the debt markets, just because, you know, the, the interest rates have crept up and, and that's reflected in, 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 in the deals that we can get. But, um, you know, m- most of my deals in the past have been like mid teens in, in terms of, uh, a, a, uh, a, uh, APR, like, you know, the percent that you're paying on an annual basis. Um, there, there are some tricky ways that some set, some providers will kind of lay out the, uh, what the, what the debts actually cost you. Like they'll, they'll, they'll put it in terms of, um, the amount you pay back. So if they're like, it's like, if I loaned you a hundred bucks and I was like, Hey, you're going to pay me back, uh, $112 over the next uh, year. That's not actually, a um, uh, it's, it's, it's presenting it. It's in a different way than, Oh, I'm going to charge you a 12% interest rate, right? Because you, 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 it, when you're paying a, an APR of 12%, it's uh, you're you're paying down the debt and the, you're ta- paying down the principal over time. So halfway through the year, you're actually only pay- you're paying 12% on half the amount of money, right? Ish. Uh, right. But the way the math works out is is the AP. It, you can convert all. No matter how someone is presents a loan, whether they're taking a percent of your revenue, that's another, that's another one that's tough to, tough to calculate, um, or, you know, the uh, presenting it in terms of a, a, they call it a discount rate when they do it. Like, you know, Oh, we're take you're going to pay us back this much money and we're going to lend you this much money and you subtract one from the other. That's the, that's the discount rate. Um, the, uh, these are tricky ways to, to communicate debt. Cause we kind of think of debt in terms of an APR, like, you know, your car payment or your house payment. Right. But all the, no matter what it is, you can convert it to, to uh, you can convert the debt from, from whatever, whatever way you're presented, you can convert it to an, an APR. Um, so that's, that's a little tricky. Uh, one, another thing is uh, to look at is the payback term. So a very, sh- a lot of companies, have kind of come on the scene lending things with a very short payback period, but that's uh, problematic and, and I would say dangerous because you're creating risk in that if, and they always, they say, Oh, well you can just re up your debt, right? So you're paying us back over six months or a year, but you can always just keep getting more debt to pay your debt, um, which would be fine, except they're not for sure going to give you that debt or maybe it gets a lot more expensive and and so because your payback period as a software company is probably 18 months or so like okay i'm going to borrow a you know 500 grand i'm going to hire some engineers and those engineers are going to build some features and i'm going to sell those i'm going to sell more of the product because i have those features um right you know hiring them spinning them up getting them actually the features completed you know a year and a half is probably as fast as that can possibly happen, right? It's probably more like two, two and a half years. So if your debt payback period, if you owe, if you owe the, the money back to the back to the lender in a shorter period than that, um, you're creating risk because what you you've kind of outlaid the capital for the investment, the engineers, 
but you haven't been able to collect the money back to pay off the debt. And so if, you know, the, the theory of, well, we'll give you more money to pay off the debt with debt is, is flawed. Cause what if they don't, what if you can't get debt? What if the you know market changes? What if, um, you, your business doesn't look as good. What if your, you know, your, your MR, your MRR shrinks for whatever reason. And, and now you can't get that, can't get that much debt again. And, and then, you know, you've killed the company. So there are mm-hmm. risks with that short-term debt. And so I, I would, uh, I would recommend trying to get like a, like a, a four-year loan and, and a lot of lenders will give you that. So I, would, I wouldn't go with one of the the short ones. So it sounds um, like don't go with the short ones. Also, make sure to weigh it out in the same terminology. Like if you're used to what an APR or APY is, make sure whatever you, whatever your options are, you convert it into that APY or APR method, right? So, yeah. so that you can compare options. Absolutely, yeah. Because it's you know so one one company is giving you a revenue based loan where they're taking a percentage of your revenue every month. And another right. country, company is giving you a discount rate loan, and another company is giving you an APR loan. Everything can be converted to APR, so you can can compare apples to apples. It's harder to like the revenue based loans are hard to, harder to convert to an APR because you have to project your revenue. Um, right. But I would just recommend to be conservative there. And if and if you know things go way better than you expected, then then uh, you know you're paying a really high interest rate loan, but things have gone better than you expected. So it's, you know, what can you do? Um, so sometimes those, those, I, I'm not saying those revenue-based loans are always bad because they're hard to, to calculate because sometimes they, they do kind of share the risk between uh, the, right. the, you and the, and the lender, because if time, things go really well for you and you have a lot of revenue, you're, they're getting a great return. But if on, on the converse, if you grow more slowly than you expect and things are crappy for you, they get a crappy return. So um, it, it, it's, you know, in, in that respect, it's a little bit like equity, but in, in that they're getting an adjustable rate return. And uh, but you're not actually still selling slices of the business like you would to an equity investor. So which routes uh, or route did you end up choosing um, as you were weighing all these options? Um, over the years I've done early on, especially early on, I did a revenue based loan. Um, and I, I think we got our first loan when we were probably doing about 60 K in MRR. Um, and, uh, and we did that with a company called lighter capital and, and they're a great firm. They, they do straight line loans and revenue based loans at this point. Um, and then we, I, I switched to a company called Scaleworks. Uh, they're, they're called Element Finance these days, and they're also they're a, a great lender. They're also a SaaS focused lender, um, and uh, they just had slightly cheaper rates at the time. All, all these guys kind of move their rates around, so you, uh, you know it's, it's it's a competitive market. So sometimes you you can get better terms or better rates at a at a different company. Um, right. And uh, and then we eventually switched to a company called Founderpath. Uh, who, uh, who, and that's who we have our debt with today. And, uh, they're, uh, they're also a SaaS focused lender and, um, and, and they do, they, they do some, they, they do different types of loans as well. They do some straight lines, some discount rate. Uh, but you know, you can, once again, you can always, you can convert it all to the same thing. And, and, and a lot of these guys today, the market has kind of moved to where, the the length of the loan is very negotiable. Like you know, they'll some people want to give you a thirty month loan. Some people want to give. Some people are fine with forty eight months. And and also the the uh, the interest rate is is 
negotiable, obviously. I mean, everything's negotiable. It's, it's debt, right? Sure. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's, those have been the ones that we've done business with. And, the, and there are, there are other great ones floating around out there. And then there's a, there, there's a bunch of bad ones floating around out there too. <laughs> what what was it that made you choose the uh the debt versus we'll just lump it into debt the the debt versus equity um or in other words dilutive versus non-dilutive uh funding um well i i guess uh you know e- equity if 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 the company does well is very expensive the nice thing is you don't have to pay it back if it's uh if the company only does okay um, right. or, or does badly, you know, in, in no case do you have to pay it back. Right there, but you've sold a chunk of the company. Um, in, I think a lot, a lot of the time SaaS companies and VCs would hate, would hate that I say this, but a lot of, a lot of SaaS, most SaaS companies are not a good fit, fit for VC investment. Um, obviously a, a, a small slice are the ones that VCs have, you know, a business model that they need, um, they need, I mean, eye-popping growth in a short amount of time. And most SaaS companies don't get eye-popping growth in a short amount of time, even though they're very good businesses, right? Right. Uh, you know, o- overnight success in SaaS tends to take 15 years and, and that's longer than a VC fund. So, you know, and obviously there are, you know, fantastic examples of SaaS companies growing super fast and getting to scale in four years. But um for in most cases it takes longer um so you know that that's that's what kind of led me to we we we've just never been on kind of that vc growth curve right of you know i'm not sure what exactly their metrics are that they're asking for these days are but they're it's you know they they need it to be uh, depending on the size of their fund, they need any investment to potentially return or almost return the fund uh, with the percentage that they own. And so that's, I've never, I've never believed that this market was going to support something of, of that nature in the amount of time that they needed it in. Um, certainly if we had raised venture capital in 2012, they would be it's but that's 11 years ago they would not be happy with us <laughs> sitting at 5.5 million whereas because we didn't raise venture capital we're very happy about sitting at 5.5 million i mean sure would i yeah. prefer to be at uh, 150 million now and that that would be a you know something that they the kind of return that they would like yeah of course that'd be amazing but i i've i've never seen this as being that kind of eye-popping growth all right, it's a different. It was a different path. They they would have different expectations on the business. Um, you would have people in the boat with you, which has its benefits, but also their own motivation, which has its lack of benefit. <laughs> to say it say it lightly. So, um, in, no, in, interesting. So, if you had one, if you had one takeaway for the, you know, non dilutive versus dilutive as people are considering, you know, their path, what what would that be for other founders? Um, well, for starters, you want to be aligned with your investors. So if you're, you know, don't, don't trick VCs into thinking that you are going to be going public in seven years, if there's no way that's going to happen. And you know, you know, your business better than they do, right? Cause you, you need to be aligned with your investors. They're going to try to drag you in a different direction or, um, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's, it goes, it goes, it's not good to not be on this, not have everybody 
in the same boat, so to speak. You need alignment with your investors. Um, so if you, if you don't have that, if you don't have a VC investment, don't bring it to VCs. And, uh, you know, I guess the advice on the debt side would be to, to, you know, watch out for the gotchas. There's, you know, there's a lot of terms that can be problematic. You know, they can yep. ask for, uh, they call them covenants, you know, things that you have to do or else, you know, you got to pay the loan back or they can change the rate on the loan, things like that. So you can't, you can't break covenants. Right. So, you know, they might have a liquidity com a covenant where they're like, okay, so, Hey, we're loaning you a million dollars, but you always have to have a half million bucks in the bank all the time. So it's like, well, if, 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 if a half million is the new zero, then, <laughs> then that's not really a million dollar loan. You just made me a half million dollar loan, but I'm paying for the full million. Um, so that's a tricky covenant. Uh, they might put EBITDA covenants or MRR covenants. I was talking with a bank and they, they wanted, they wanted me to, they put a covenant in place. They wanted to have a, I mean, I didn't do, they didn't do the deal for this reason. They wanted a covenant in place where, um, then, and they were offering a very attractive rate. Uh, but the covenant was that we had to grow at 15% a year. And last year we grew at 30%. So, you know, should we grow at 15% every year going forward? Yeah, we should. Except, you know, 2020, we grew at negative 8%. And yeah. so, you know, there are bad things that can happen that can affect you in the short term. A SaaS business survives, but not if it had a covenant like that with their with their debt, because it turns out in the bad times when you... When you, when you or when no one wants to give you debt or, or to refinance your loan, right? Sure. Lenders, lenders love to lend you an umbrella unless it's raining, you know, so you, can, so you yeah. it's a tricky bunch. And to then you're with. just carrying an umbrella around. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, you know, you, you, you got to really watch out for, for the things they demand, you know, there, there's uh breakup penalties where they're, that I've seen where they're like, uh, Hey, you have to, pay us the interest you would have paid us over the entire life of the loan. If you try to refinance this out and almost all these, these things, the, the thing you remember is these are all negotiable. You, you can, right. you know, I've, I've, I've gotten, I had that, I saw that term and I had them redlined it out. I was like, no, we can leave you and pay you pay off the loan at its current, you know, for the, the amount that we currently owe. And, and, and they, they did do that. Um, so it's all, it's all negotiable. Awesome, Steve. It's super, super helpful. Um, let's close things off with our founder five today. So um, five quick hit things all about your growth as a founder and as a company. Uh, first one is uh, the number one metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on. Um, MRR, and I guess it's it's derivatives, like breaking it up, like upsells, churn, new revenue. Uh, but MRR is the is the number at the top of my screen. Got it. Got it. All right. A top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. Top tip for I, I guess it depends uh, depends where you're on what, what what growth stage. So I guess if you have product product market fit and you've got a bunch of customers, you figured out how to go to market. Um, I guess uh, I, I guess the uh, the, there's so many things the, yeah, I mean, the, I guess the, the, the founder advice would be, this is not a job like successfully founding and getting to the growth stage of a meaningful company just takes all the, takes all the air out of your, t t takes all the bandwidth, uh, yep. uh, in your life over, over the period of time you're doing it. Um, 
you know, what, and it, you know, getting, getting something off the ground from zero to a million is really, really hard. Getting it from a million to 3 million is really, really hard. Getting from three to 10 is really hard. Um, I, I guess it is easier now, you know, at just above five than it was, uh, at, you know, a, a half million when I was doing every job, but, but really it, it takes all your bandwidth from being a good friend, good son, daughter, father, husband, or, or wife, uh, extracurriculars. So I would say, you know, it takes a lot of bandwidth. So you have to ruthlessly prioritize and account for your time and put it in the places where you, where you do prioritize, you know, your and you know, most of your hobbies that you enjoy, you probably don't get to do very much anymore. Yeah. Um, so you got to nice. identify the things that really, really matter to you and only do those things and don't expect uh, don't, don't have the expectation that you're going to have any decent work-life balance. I don't think, I think, you know, getting the train out of the station is nearly, you know, it's impossible, right? It's impossible to get it, to move a train and get it going. But, but one, but, but, it, but it's not totally impossible because it happens every once in a while. And once that train is in motion, that train becomes pretty unstoppable. Um, well, so. Awesome. All right. Uh, favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow as a founder? Uh, well, great next question because you know that's where I kind of got impossible to inevitable, which is uh, where I was, what I was kind of alluding to in the last uh, in the last question. Like it's impossible to get this thing going, but once it's going, it's inevitable. So that's a great book. Yeah, awesome. Um, all right, piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom. Um, I guess traditional, there's a lot of advice and a lot of thoughts that I would have that would, if, if the traditional wisdom is being said by your venture capitalist and, and, and they have soaked up a lot of, uh, air in the room in terms of advice, uh, there's a lot, there are a lot of times when the founder, what's best for a founder is not what's best for a VC firm. Like VC firms want you to pursue a giant idea that can be giant really quickly or something that's, or they, but, but it has a high probability of failure, right? Like they, they they want these really high risk high reward things and they would guide you in that direction or i would say you know a lot of times you can become very successful as a founder and and you you know depending on what you think success is uh if success is running a fortune 500 company then obviously this isn't great advice but if there if if your goal is to be make enough money that you're that you're well off and create something and solve a real problem and and get to lead something and with with less with less probability of failure, I would say that you should not go after the huge market, the most com- competitive spaces. You know, a lot of times those are very. You know, if you're trying to, you know, there was only one company. There was only one or two, maybe two Instagrams, right? But like they and they ex- they they exit fast. They exit for huge money. They're you know, but it's, you know, there were twenty. Uh, there were twenty companies that were basically sharing photos online. Right. And, and most of them just went to zero. A couple of them squeaked through and became like either public or purchased for tons of money, like Instagram was. But, um, so I, yeah. bottom line, don't go after the huge market. There are a lot of, a lot of software companies that get, that become worth 20 or 50 or a hundred or 200 million that VCs would consider a loss. There's, there's a lot more of those than there are those rare wins that are high risk and high reward. All right, last one here. What is going to be the title of your autobiography? 
Uh, I don't know if I'll write an autobiography. I don't know if I'm that interesting. <laughs> But, but uh, if I if I had an autobiography, well, the title "Grits" already taken, but I would like that one. Um, I don't know that that's that's a t- I would have to I would have to give that some thought. That, that's I don't have a great answer for for uh, what my my credo is, but uh, I, I I would. Maybe how about how about uh, you don't always get work life balance. That's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. Yeah, that is a good one. Or grit number two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, start, starting a company is hard. It's it's very hard, and it's certainly not for everyone. I don't I don't necessarily recommend it to anyone. I think it's you know you're you're probably it, most people that could successfully start a company probably would have a better life if they just worked at a medium-sized company doing interesting things, but take all the risk off the table and, and collect. It's a, it's not a bad time to be a, an employee making, you know, 300 K a year. It's there, there's yeah. collecting that, collect that health insurance, pay down a mortgage. Like that's don't, it's not a bad time to do that. <laughs> Maybe we'll make that the title. Not a bad time to do that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, awesome. Uh, Steve, you, you've given a ton to our listeners today. Uh, time for a little bit of self-promotion as we close things out. How can those listening help you out? Well, I mean, if, if you know field salespeople, people that go and meet uh, customers face-to-face in the field or field service people, um, sometimes they behave in the same way where they have to make choices, um, prioritize uh, if you know them, let them know that we exist. I mean, our, most of our customers are like, I had no idea this was a thing. This has been a problem for my whole career. And I didn't know someone solved this. It's like, yep, there's an app for that. So that's, that's the way they can probably help us. If you know, if you know field salespeople, let them know that, that, uh, that we exist. Excellent. And how can folks get in touch with you? Well, if, if, uh, they're looking for the product or the company, badgermapping.com, um, or, you know, just search badger maps, you'll find us. Uh, if, if you're looking to get in touch with me, um, LinkedIn is probably the best way. Just look up Steve Benson, Badger Maps. I'm, uh, I'm easy to find. Excellent, man. Well, thanks again. Thanks all for listening to The Dirt. Steve, it's been a pleasure, my man. And uh, keep, keep building. Keep building. Thanks. I appreciate that. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.